Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games for your very, very last So Very Wrong About Games of 2019. I won't see you until next year, Mark. It's going to be a shame. Next decade, even. We can keep, this is the joke that everyone's doing. It's like, oh, I don't have any time for you this decade. I'll see you in a decade. Gotcha. Yeah. So, then, of course, we have the pedants who are going to show up and point out correctly, albeit correctly, that the decade technically doesn't start in 2020. It starts in 2021. I'm a pedant about a great many things, but I am more than happy to let usage take over in this particular case. Anyway, I am your pedant, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? How you doing, Mark? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well as well. Thank you for not asking. We have a minor correction this week. We love our corrections here about So Very Wrong About Games. It is our namesake. It is our brand. I complained at length in a very petulant tone about the endgame not, conditions not of- you, Mark. Surely. <laughs> I whined like a small child, like a little sooky baby, about the endgame conditions of Mechanica. And this is my fault, really, because I'm the one that read it. It was a joint, look, it was a joint problem. Friends don't let friends let Walker explain games. It was an error on my part, especially when the rulebook is, say, ten pages or less, and, and therefore I can read it during the time that Walker tries to differentiate his left hand from his right. I should have read the rulebook so as to take control of the situation. Anyhow, the endgame conditions of Mechanica do allow for equal turns. The... It was just a, a misreading of a couple different paragraphs. That's fine. That's fine. We're not exactly talking about top of the SAT charts here for reading comprehension. We apologize for the complaints, even though it would have been a simple fix. And as I said, I would have fully intended to play with equal turns going forward. But Mechanica did not commit that grievous design error that we thought it did. Our sincere apologies to those involved. And also thank you to the swagger who pointed out our error. We always love the fact that you are here to keep us honest and to point out that we are indeed full of crap. So. We're going to talk about board games here on this podcast. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about our feature game this week, which is Kalos 1303 by William Attia and Space Cowboys. 
So with that in mind, let us head right on to the games we played last week. I got to play a game that I've been looking for for quite some time, even though it was published last year. This is going to be a bit of a story here, Walker. There, I'm, I'm, I'm well, I'm, I'm leaning back, Mark. There are actual Grail games, the term being that certain games that you, you desperately wish to acquire and are very difficult to get. The last Grail game I had was Mega Civilization, and I acquired that. And then Mark wept, for there were no more Grails to conquer. But there's been kind of what I would call a mini Grail, a chibi Grail, if you will, of a certain Reiner Knizia card game that was arguably in the same design pedigree as Taj Mahal, which I don't like, and Beowulf, which I adore. And it is called... Here, pronunciation is going to be a little bit of a bugbear. I'm going to call it Karate Tomati. In German, it's Karate Tomata. I don't want to call it that because neither of those are English pronunciations. And so I like Karate Tomati. I also just like the way that it goes. Anyway, Karate Tomati is a brilliant little game of dueling martial arts vegetable practitioners. Or fruits, if you want to include t- uh, tomatoes there. Again, we are not pedantic about such things here on So Very Wrong About Games. I say it's brilliant mostly in terms of theme. In terms of execution, it's pretty good. It's it's enjoyable. It's diverting. It uh, accommodates a very large player count. It plays up to ten players. I played it this time with six it is very much like Beowulf or Taj Mahal, a game of chicken. You keep playing cards to stay in the round, and if you stay in the round long enough, you will get to participate in the divvying up of goods. And if you can't stay in because you don't have the cards, you have to drop out and potentially get nothing. And Karate Tamati is much, much simpler than Beowulf or Taj Mahal. The, the general line is there's Taj Mahal, Beowulf simplified it, Karate Tamati is a further distillation of that. But I thought it was very diverting. Look, if you've got a large number of people and you want to play a game of chicken, I think Karate Tamati is pretty good. I don't know if you put tomatoes in your chicken, but this is getting very confused. And best of all, in terms of how I managed to acquire my copy, because it wasn't available on any domestic distribution channels and I couldn't find anyone in North America with whom to trade, I actually bought my copy from Rudiger Dorn. Rudiger Dorn was selling a copy of Karate Tomati on the Board Game Geek Marketplace, and if you have an option of buying a Reiner Knizia game from Rudiger Dorn, you take it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a nice combo. He was charging five euros, and the shipping was many, 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 many times higher than that, and he seemed somewhat confused that I wanted to buy it at all, but I was just like... I love your games. Give me Karate Tamari. So it was a marvelous little purchase, and I do not regret it at all. It's not going to set the world on fire, and it's probably not the deepest thing in existence, and the luck of the draw is pretty significant. But I do occasionally enjoy the way Reiner Knizia does chicken, and Karate Tamari is very pleasant and very quick and diverting. Maybe like head fake with the chicken and then give him the tomato. Well, this is games that we're talking about for the holidays, right? Easy to introduce to families can incorporate lots of people, and the segue into that is Telestration's 12-player party pack. Mark, have you ever remembered fondly on your games of of Broken Telephone, when you're sitting around in junior and senior kindergarten, and you're whispering to your friend as it goes around the circle, this is grown-up Broken Telephone. So what it has is it has this nice little... Uh, pad that you go through every phase and on the top of the pad it'll give you instructions on what to do and essentially what you're doing is everyone has a card at the beginning you roll a d6 and you write down your secret word so everyone has a different secret word and then you draw a little picture of your secret word and everyone passes their book to the right and then everyone looks at your picture and they try to make a guess on a new page on what your picture is and then everyone passes the book to the left and everyone looks at the guess and they draw their new picture so it's a back and forth between guess draw picture guess draw picture as these you know seven or eight pads go all around the table and then when it's all done you get to tell this great story about how your secret word started off as flamethrower <laughs> turning into dance party turning into, it was it was a fantastic game 
same. And like even two of the books are like mer- both of them came down to martini somehow. So you have two books with the same thing <laughs> going on. It was a fantastic game. Seven people. This thing goes up to 12. It's a great little game. And that is telestrations. See, there seems to be two obvious problems with this. Number one, there's drawing involved, so I'm automatically out. But number two, why do we have to choose between them? Why can't we have a flamethrower cocktail dance party? It's This is the problem. This seems like the obvious solution. Everybody wins. So this is by USAopoly, and the designer is uncredited. Well then. I know, well then. We have views on that. I know. I played some more of the Shipwreck Arcana. The Shipwreck Arcana is a co-op... I'm going to say logic game, but that's being a little bit generous. Here's the thing about the Shipwreck Arcana. I've now played it about half a dozen times. It's very quick, very accessible. And I commented after playing it the first time that I didn't think it would hold up to things like Hanabi. Hanabi is a brilliant design, and it's really, really good. But the Shipwreck Arcana is definitely more accessible and prettier and faster, and it feels less stressful. And I think one of the reasons why all this is the case is the Shipwreck Arcana is, I'm not going to deploy one of the things that the internet loves to do and that Walker loves to do and say it's not a game. That, first of all, I think it would be an exaggeration. Number two, I don't like engaging in those kinds of paradigms. But the Shipwreck Arcana, the way I'm going to characterize it is it gives you the illusion of being clever. You know those logic puzzles that aren't really puzzles? It's just a question of going through the motions, but they're nonetheless pleasant because you get to feel like you're solving something even though you're not. Like a bone-simple Sudoku. Like a Sudoku that even a baby could do. That's kind of the level at which one appreciates the Shipwreck Arcana. And it may sound like I'm being pejorative, and to a certain extent I am. In terms of design quality, the Shipwreck Arcana has some things to, 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 to make up for. But in terms of the experience of playing it, it's still very nice. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're playing a tile. You have two tiles available in four different logic conditions that you can play to. And the number of times over the past few games where I've been playing where it was just obvious, where, you know, again, the example being, you play this tile if your other tile is one higher or one lower, and someone plays the highest value tile of that, it's like, well, you know what they have. Or another card that's even more simple that says, play this if both your tiles are the same value. Well, you know what they have. And the number of times where it was just a single play leading to an obvious result that was the obvious play, really high, a really high proportion of the time. Not always, but the room for clever play in that environment is really, really narrow. The room for clever deduction or clever induction or clever leaps of faith or clever use of special powers, really narrow. Still really fun. As far as its quality as a game goes, I'm not really sure it's there, but it, it really does manage to pull off this trick of making you think like you're making good plays, even if those plays are obvious. And that's not nothing. So it's a small box game. It's diverting and it's accessible. So I think it's going to stay in my collection. I'm always going to prefer Hanabi for people who are up to it, but for people who are not up to it and would like something prettier and or faster, I do think the Shipwreck Arcana is worthy, albeit based largely on deception. All right. I mentioned it briefly at the end of the last show. Uh, Yellow Nancy, Direwolf, which is a software publisher, has brought out uh, Yellow Nancy for on Steam played quite a few games of it it's got this great little campaign system that you can go through and explains how the game works so if you haven't had a chance to try yellow and yancy this is a great way to check it out it's the digital version by direwolf how does the campaign work oh it just gives you like little scenarios like oh here's your village and these people are encroaching on it and you know you have to uh like get out all of your pagodas or take away three of their pagodas. So it's sort of a way to introduce how you use the game mechanics in order to do certain things and, and make those the, the you know, missions of the game as opposed to getting victory points. Cool. Played Marvel Champions the card game. This is the latest LCG from Fantasy Flight. I'm getting a skeptical look from Walker. No, that's no, not skeptical. I'm very, I'm just very interested. Oh, you're very it, interested. It's well, getting buzz and I, I have no idea about it whatsoever. Well, this is a game not for me. 
right? In terms of full disclosure, the theme doesn't do anything for me. And even if I were interested in the theme, the actual execution of the theme is very dodgy. You have situations where, like, Rhino is trying to rob a bank. Fair enough. And he's being confronted by Spider-Man. Fair enough. And Captain Marvel. Wait, what? And it's just so weird situations like that. You know, Captain Marvel unleashes a full energy blast to Rhino's face and does eight damage. Okay, next turn. Like, various things that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And yes, this is me being very picky about thematic integration, but I just don't understand why someone would be very, very attracted to something by virtue of the theme, and then when the theme is just a total hash. So the theme theming is mostly just a total hash in Marvel Champions, the card game. And I haven't played... Marvel's, uh, sorry, a Fantasy Flight's previous co-op LCG. So this is a co-op LCG. They've they've done that before with Lord of the Rings. And I'm also not entirely convinced as to why you would want a co-op game to be an LCG. Because if you're engaging in the joys of deck construction, I don't understand why you... Personally, I don't see the appeal in engaging in deck construction to beat a an AI deck. I further don't understand the... Uh, uh, idea of constructing an AI deck and then constructing the deck to defeat that AI deck. That just seems weirdly self-referential to me in a way that it doesn't leave, leave me to be particularly interested. When I play Shadespire or the Beastgrave, I have to stop saying Shadespire. When I sit, play something like Warhammer Underworlds, or even when I play something like Epic, I'm like, ooh, I'd like to build a different deck to see how that works. But those are competitive experiences, and I expect some sort of dynamic opposition rather than I would like to play against this 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 static AI thing and tinker with the guts underneath it. Uh, anyway, I, that having been said, it has some clever bits. There's this notion of your hero either being in their hero mode or in their alter ego mode. Uh, when they're in their alter ego mode, the villains are unopposed, and so they start advancing towards their own victory condition, but you can also heal, whereas in your hero mode, you're actively confronting them, and then there's more outward combat. That part I thought was really cool, and there's some decisions about how to manage back and forth. Sometimes you'll just end up in patterns where you alternate one turn to the other, but sometimes there are some cool elements, and most of the cards uh, have elements that are tied to you being in one mode as opposed to another. And there's a fair amount of variety in the base set. I will give them credit for that. There's a couple different villains, and there's a bunch of different hero options. Two of them are pre-built out of the box. Then there are a few more that you can build yourself. But all told, it really didn't grab me that much. It was fine. It was it was a perfectly pleasant experience. You know, you play your cards, you do some damage to it to a target. But really, we've been spoiled with that kind of fundamental mode of play. I would much rather play Sentinels of the Multiverse. I actually find the the superhero universe, as posited by Sentinels of the Multiverse, as it comes through in the game, is vastly more compelling to me than the superhero universe that filters through in Marvel Champions. And they're not super similar as far as card games go, but they're fundamentally similar in the sense that you've got these decks and you're playing against a, an ultimate villain and you want to knock them out. Well, the advantage that Sentinels has is that you know, they introduce all the heroes at once, so they're all pretty well balanced, whereas... In this Marvel, you're taking heroes from everywhere, so you've got you know such an unbalance in powers that I don't know why they would do try to try to do such a thing. Well, actually, they're mirror images of each other, right? In Sentinels of the Multiverse, there are there's tremendous power differential between how the game how the heroes actually play in the game, whereas in Marvel Champions, you have these different heroes at a different power level that come across as playing at the same power gotcha. level. So it's a pick your poison type of situation. But as I say. My my tepid response to the game shouldn't be read as any sort of serious condemnation because, again, it wasn't pitched to my, my desires or expectations anyway. I'd be curious to see what you have to think 
about Marvel Champions, the card game. I'm not particularly inclined to go chase down, you know, card expansion sets so I can tinker my deck or what have you. It just doesn't appeal to my sense of deck construction or what I want deck construction to do. I'm not entirely sure why, and it's not fair necessarily to the game. But those are my experiences of Marvel Champions, the card game. And who was the designer of that? That was Michael Boggs, Nate French, and Caleb Grace. Just some... They've done a bunch of design work for them in the past. they're, They're increasingly working on a stable of lesser known designers that do a whole bunch of expansion material and, and, and other games. Mark and I got to play Maracaibo. It's designed by Alexander Pfister, and it's his, uh, a new game from the same designer who did Great Western Trail, and it's getting some comparisons to Great Western Trail, which I can see the mechanisms being the same slightly, but I, but they, I, I feel that they play totally different. I do think it's a completely different experience. I have to say that while I was playing it, I was not having a positive experience, but it's almost been the sole game I've been thinking about over the past couple of weeks, and I've been waiting to get back to it, to try it again. What was it that grabbed you? I don't know, just the way the the cards interact, and and they have the adventurer that goes along the bottom that plays like the train where they skip spaces, but it has nothing to do with anything else. Like, all you're doing is it's just a straight gain of resources, right? Whereas the train had all sorts of different things you could do with it, right? So, of course, it is the exact same sort of movement system, but it's a completely different uh, reward system. And then there's the way the cards interact. It sort of plays off that you're you're going for these different strategies and that you need to get the cards you need. But I, I've seen towards the end of the game that we're cycling through the deck so many times that from what I've some from what I've read is that people are saying the decisions about playing cards. Like you have to decide whether or not to play them for the resources or play them in front of you and get all the benefits from that. And it's a big playoff on, on how to do that. But I'm wondering if more and more that there is not really a playoff because you're just going to, you play it off as the resource and it goes in the discard pile and it gets cycled back so quickly. You have a very large chance of if a not getting a card that's exactly like it or getting that exact card back again when you need it. Where Great Western Trail was a deck builder, Maracaibo is a tableau builder. So you're not so much worried about the quality of cards in your deck. You're worried about the quality of the cards you're able to quote unquote buy and play out. And it's rather expensive to buy cards. You can't do it all the time. Uh, but you get to draw up to your hand size at the end of every round if you use cards for other purposes. If you, Discarding cards has precious little opportunity cost, as you indeed point out. To a certain extent, that, that's a similarity with it in Great Western Trail. In Great Western Trail, discarding a card from your hand was no problem because you'll be getting more and it's still in your deck. And here in Maracaibo, you'll just be drawing more cards, so it's all okay. And you, you can't afford to buy all your cards anyway, so might as well hold on to just a couple. I I was really feeling the similarity to Great Western Trail in the sense that you've got your primary action selector moving around what is effectively like a giant rondelle on steroids, but you can't manipulate the rondelle. It, it evolves rather considerably over the course of the game, whether you're playing the campaign version or the scenario version. You're going to have quests show up and cities are going to change and action, action spaces will change. But honestly, I felt that the variety there was kind felt kind of skin deep because, as you say, there's no real sense. I didn't get a real sense of specialization when playing Maracaibo. I was doing a little bit of everything in a traditional Euro kind of way. And I much preferred the focus of things like Mombasa or Great Western Trail because Fister has a very, very definite design aesthetic. And I, I really feel like all his games feel very much like all his other games. And so it's a question to pick your favorite. And as I say, I prefer Great Western Trail. I think that the way the different mechanisms hang together, just as the example, 
you have the train advancing on the track, and that determines what you can do with your herd. And what you do with your herd is a function of your deck, and how you build your deck is a function of what you do on the giant rondelle. And so you have all these things working together. As opposed to in Maracaibo, where they felt a little bit separate. You've got your tableau, which is doing its own thing. Sometimes it might influence how you do things elsewhere. You've got these action spaces on this giant rondelle, and you've got this explorer track, which is just a series of bennies that you get. So the variety is there. Like, there's tons of scenarios, and effectively infinite variety in what happens to the rondelle, but it's not as organic as the variety that that develops in Great Western Trail, because in Great Western Trail, it's what hazards have people been buying or placing, what buildings have people been put out. Great Western Trail isn't one of my favorites, but I do prefer it so far over Maracaibo. But I definitely see why the Fister heads are all over this. It's still yet more of Fister. It's a little bit longer than Great Western Trail. How much longer is tough to tell because we were playing with a very slow player who seemed to think that it was against the rules to consider what to do with his turn before his turn began. Uh, I tried to explain to him that it was not in the rulebook and that was not a standard of play that we have here in Kingston, but nonetheless, it seemed to recur. And I'm I'm being cruel. The game was a little bit denser than he's probably used to. So I'm I'm willing to try it again, and I'm I'm certainly eager to see how the system evolves because Fister Games, uh, there's usually more to it than initially appears. But he's not exactly my favorite designer, and in his oeuvre, I'd, I'd rather play Great Western Trail. Yeah, I'm worried that's going to fall into the thing where it's just too much for less payout, right? That you're doing, there's so many different things going on, and what is the actual fun part of this game? Like a lot of people say, you know, collecting this, you know, decent herd and going across and selling them, you know, and getting a cool engine going in Great Western Trail, that's the fun part. Like, I'm trying to figure out what is the fun part in this game. <laughs> not that it's not there. I'm not saying it's not there. It's that I've, I've, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, going through all of that, like, what is, what is the part that's going to pull me back again? and again. Yes, especially since, again, it, it feels very similar to me to some of his other work. It's going to need something to differentiate it. And I don't think that the tremendous variety offered by the scenarios is going to do it because it mostly just changes the city action spaces, which all more or less devolve into the same thing anyway. So. And it falls a little bit into that thing where people's tableau are so different that you have really no idea what they're doing, right? They, you know, they're saying, okay, I, I get to do this now and this now. I get five victory points for this. And, you're, and all you can just say is, Okay, I guess you do, because, you know, there's, I'm, I'm sure this will be something that you'll be able to figure out once you get to know the game. You'll get to know the cards, you'll understand what's going on, but on the first couple of plays, it, it seems like you have no idea what other people are doing. It's true. The quality of the player interaction generally seemed to be pretty poor, as far as I'm concerned. The primary way you interact with other players in Great Western Trail is by getting in their way and putting out buildings, and if you don't have that, which you don't in Maracaibo, what you're putting out just goes into your personal tableau. That means you have a little less interaction, which is unfortunate. There is interaction. There's lots of competition to get somewhere first. That's the primary way. It's it's manipulating the tempo of a given round. But it felt a little less substantive to me. I get to play a game called Aristocracy, which is a new Reiner Knizia tile-laying game this year, published by Tasty Mitchell Games. And I thought it was delightful. It was very light. Very, very, very light. He's put out two tiling games this year, Babylonia and Aristocracy, and Babylonia is definitely the more gamerly version of it. Aristocracy has this element where you put out an incredible number of tiles face down onto a grid, and on your turn you flip up three tiles, and then you choose one type of symbol, and you activate all the tiles of that symbol, whether you revealed them this turn, or whether they were revealed by another player in a previous turn and didn't activate them, so on and so forth. Some of them get you goods, those are just goods that sit out in front of you, some of them let you place buildings. Oh, that's cool. So like you, so you flip up a couple tiles like AAB, 
you use the two A's and B is still up. And the next player, you know, flips up two B's and a C, and now suddenly he's got three B's to deal with, so he gets to do a cooler action. That's very interesting. I like to try that. It is neat. There's a kind of a sort of a push-your-luck element, too. I mean, granted, if you're playing a three- or four-player game, you can't really rely on any of the things being around for your next turn, but it really is a question of... It, it has those trade-offs of, do I want to do this inefficient thing, or do I want to take the thing that's drowning in symbols and it's less efficient, but I get more volume? So that, that part was cool. And there was a certain amount of blocking and competition for valuable spaces, you know, all the standard tile-laying stuff. I don't think it's going to enter his top tier of tiling stuff, but I, I really liked it as a very light tiling game with some relatively whimsical pastel fantasy art and a rather cynical non-theme more or less the, the the ruling class is gone and no one really cares where they went. So everyone, the picture the, the picture on the cover is someone putting up painted boards of a castle around their barn to make their barn look like a castle. In in short, it's adds to the delight. I find a lot of elements of aristocracy delightful both visually and in terms of playstyle. For a quick light tiling game, it's got rather a lot of setup, but it has practically practically no rules overhead and even for Knizia the scoring isn't that complicated. That's often often where a lot of this complexity comes, especially in tiling games. Uh, people often got confused, for example, in Babylonia. Wait, how does this score again? What does this do in terms of points? The actual gameplay is simple, but the scoring is complicated. Aristocracy is very, very, very simple. If you want a very light, very accessible tiling game, I think you can do a lot worse than Aristocracy. I really enjoyed it. I did a, a sort of a learning game of Flotilla by WizKids. It's a little bit like Concordia, where everyone's going to get a hand of action cards. They don't have nothing to do with the victory points, but you know, everyone has the standard do six different actions and you can, you know, purchase cards later on in order to upgrade your deck. I think it's got, I haven't, you know, I want to play it again. I want to try it. Just, you know, I will just talk about it briefly. It seems as though it has, you know, the same Euro thing where you, uh, you build an engine and then you sort of transition into, you know, a victory point engine. Whereas this is, you know, turn that into an actual mechanism where it, you, you know, you start up your resources and then you actually flip everything sky side and you can, it even says you can do it in turn one or you can not do it at all. And then you suddenly get all your tiles back and you, you try to, you know, manipulate them and start scoring points. Seems awfully interesting. It seems though there's like a lot going on. It seems there's a lot of theme there that is lost. Like there's all these guilds, but it never explains why there's all these guilds. And I think they could have been a lot more with a little bit more flavor text in the game, but we'll see. I want to take another quick look at it and I'll get back to you. And that is, uh, Flotilla by WizKids. I'd be very interested to try it, only if you promise to stop talking about Waterworld in the context of the game. (sighs) Finally, I got to play Era Medieval Age again. This is the Matt Leacock, quote-unquote, roll and build put up this year by Eggertspiel. And I remain incredibly diverted by Era Medieval Age. I love watching my little city develop. The tactile thrill... And the visual appeal of putting out these little miniatures is so profound that it really makes me forgive its very high cost because the components really pay off. Where your buildings are matters. It's not just eye candy, although there's plenty of that. Playing out the little different types of buildings. I've really come to, I'm kind of in a third phase of appreciation of the game. In the first phase of the game, I was exploring the different buildings and loving the variety. In the second phase, I was still enjoying the game, but I was thinking, eh, I've seen all the buildings now. I know how all of them work, whatever. And now I'm in the third phase where it's like, you really just have to let the dice speak to you to a certain extent. You have to 
abandon the fact that you really like to build a hospital. If you aren't getting enough wood, forget building a hospital. Build something else and just be a little bit more flexible. And being able to deal with the vicissitudes and, and, and of the randomness and be flexible with that, those are some of the things that I appreciate in games with dice. Rather than just determining whether an action succeeds or fails, but giving to you an evolving set of conditions whereby you have to be able to adapt and accommodate to what you're ga- getting in a way that lets you compete with other players. That's how I like randomness in my Euros. And I'm starting to get... I'm starting to... Th- to really lean into that when playing Era Medieval Age. So I've been having lots more pleasant experiences. It's a very, very accessible game, and the visual appeal is so high that people people are attracted to it naturally. I've been enjoying it. The one thing I want to add is I'm going to bring it up with Kalis later. It has this one thing where you look at the your little personal board. It's like this pegboard. It might not look great at first, but the fact that it locks your things into place. Like they could have just done, you know, like models that you put on, you know, a piece of cardboard grid. But the fact that there's no way they're going to slide around, it seems like a small thing, but it is huge. The fact that you never have to worry, it's never going to slide. It's just, it'll come up in Kalis again when I talk about it later, but it's just one of these small little things they do that just makes the gameplay that much more enjoyable. Well, if they'd wanted to, they could have just made tiles. True. It could have just been like Baron Park or anything like that. It's like, here's your grid, put out some tiles, but then you wouldn't have cool little plastic things. Exactly. And that's all we got for the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. No news. We just have I just have two quick little things, which are both games that are going to be reprinted. Rococo Deluxe by designer Mathis Kramer and Stefan Maltz. It's going to be coming out by Eagle Griffin Games. This is some news because they're just going to bypass Kickstarter. They're just going to... Not that, you know, that came out like it was a negative thing. They're not going to put it up on Kickstarter. They're not going to have any stretch goals. This is the way the game's going to be. You can order it on January 22nd, the way it is, or not. I've only played Rococo once. I remember it being a fantastic Euro game. I'm sure we're going to talk about in a subject later on in an upcoming episode why games need to be redone. But so be it. On to the second part of the news which is yet another reprint, Kanban. This is going to be Kanban EV. So this might not be a direct reprint. I did a little bit of reading on this. Now there's some sort of, these are now electric cars, and it does sound as though they're going to do some, some a little bit of tweaks and, and changes to it. This one is going to be an updated version of the 2014 release of Kanban Automotive Revolution that came out by Stronghold. This version is going to be put out by EGG Games. Yeah, EGG is pretty much the exclusive distributor now of all the Vital Lacerda stuff. So, so yeah, this is Lacerda, like you said, and the artwork's going to be Eno Tool. I love Eno Tool's work, so I'm hoping uh, I've played Kanban twice. It is one of these giant, Euro-complicated, heavy rule loads game. I love it. It's one of the ones that hardly ever get to the table. Because when you want a heavy Euro, it's always going to be... Uh, food chain magnet because it's (laughs) fantastic yeah legit so that is the news for this week and why it doesn't matter on to our feature game of the week which is kalis 1303 so here's the timeline in 2005 kalis was released by william atia and istari games and this actually predates some of the other very, very mainstream Euro worker placement games. For example, Agricola was published in 2007. So this was the early days of worker placement when not every game was worker placement. It definitely wasn't the first, but it was one of the first major releases and certainly one of the first major heavy-ish 
worker placement games. It was followed two years later by Kalis Magna Carta in 2007, also the year of Agricola. And we are now in 2019 and we have Kalis 1303. And here, here's what we have in terms of progression. And this is what I think is really important. This is under the Goldilocks theory of cover art. On the cover of Kalis, we had one frowning man, rather famously. In Kalis Magna Carta, we had three smiling people, which was too much. That was too much happiness, too much joy. Yeah. And in point of fact, strangely enough, Kalis Magna Carta, one of its greatest weaknesses is that it wasn't mean enough. And so now we have Kalis 1303, which has two people featuring neutral expressions. So we've, we've evened out the number of people on the cover and what's on their face. So clearly this is the just right version. I'm sure, I'm sure no one will complain about it whatsoever. The, the internet has spoken and has finally come to a consensus on one thing, and that is the cover of of Kalis thirteen oh three. That's what they picked for is, the for is, the universal consensus. That's right. Is 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 now fine. So we can put one thing aside on the internet, and it is now okay. Hold off, Jerusalem. We're exactly. going to get to a consensus about this first. <laughs> exactly. No, it's not the fact that you know they they came to. It's just it's already done, done and done. Oh, okay, good to know. So why don't you give us an unhelpful summary I about will. what one does in Kalis thirteen oh three? you are assessing which spaces are most in demand and what spaces are essential for your plan and how badly are your opponents utilizing their special abilities and is it time to put an end to it, take their special ability or rob them of the resource that they are, you know, using to, you know, work their engine. And that's pretty well what you're doing. It's a fantastic worker placement game that's been, you know, boiled down to its its purity and I can't wait to talk about it. Okay. So well, let, why don't we talk first about the worker placement itself? Because that, I think, is one of the ways in which Kalis 1303 is heads and shoulders above a lot of other recent releases. Because the way the board develops, the action spaces evolve considerably. But at the same time, every placement feels tight. Because it's not a, a pure linear progress of just more spaces available or more workers available a lot of the way a lot of other worker placement games go. And frequently in many worker placement games that I play, even games that I really like, even some of my favorite worker placement games, my last placements feel a bit sloppy and loose. And it's like, eh, what am I going to do here? Uh, I don't care. I guess I'll go here or something. But in Kalis 1303, for a variety of reasons, among them the way the board develops, every placement to me feels consequential. Like I'm actually making a significant trade-off and I'm actually impacting seriously what my opponents are doing. Did you get that sense too? 100%. And part of this, I think, is because of what they've done to workers. And this is the biggest change between Kalis to Kalis 1303. In Kalis, what you did was you had a certain number of workers, but the number of workers wasn't super relevant. It was rarely your cap on actions. Usually what was your cap on actions was the amount of money you had, because every time you placed a worker, you needed to pay some amount of money. Whereas in Kalis 1303, your workers are your currency. And this is different in two ways. Number one, money is gone, and anytime you would have to spend money, instead you spend workers. And number two, unlike other worker placement games, you don't get all your workers back at the top of every round. This is what we're accustomed to. You've got five workers, six workers, whatever. That's the number you have. You place them all every round, so there's no reason to hold back on any of your workers. But here in Kalis 1303, your, your worker income, by default, is usually relatively low, and so it makes sense to hold back your workers. If there's nothing good available, pass and go on, go and move on with it, because you're not necessarily going to get them back. Yep, and you also can use them as currency to move the provost at the end, which is a mechanism that can stop spaces from activating at all, right? And you can move it up to three times, and you're also using workers for that. Like Mark said, there's no normal currency. It's all just done with workers. And not only do you place workers to stop people from using spaces, 
you also can uh, convert those spaces into work or production for yourself. They go to what you call a uh, lawyer space, and suddenly, you know, everyone's using wood to get victory points, and you're not. Well, I'm just going to flip that worker space, that worker space over, and now it's giving me workers every turn instead. That actually, that that choice, that evolution of the economy is one of those subtle things that I didn't really appreciate the first couple of times when I played KLS 1303 because not only are you denying your opponents and denying the economy the action of a certain space that people were relying on before, but this is a way to encourage people to start using your own buildings. Whenever you build a building, uh, you get to claim ownership over it, and every time someone visits it, they start giving you points. Or rather, you get points from the bank. It's not that they feed you. It's, it, you, you. You take points from the bank. And suddenly, you can, if you're clever and if you're careful, with it, you can say, oh, well, uh, I have this way to produce wood. Suddenly, I'm the only way to get wood in the game, or more or less the only way to get wood in the game. And this dovetails in with what I was talking before about how there's not just a linear progression of the number of buildings. The the buildings that you are relying on in turn one might not even be around in turn four, and that really forces people to adapt and the economy to change in sometimes subtle and surprising ways. Yeah, I never, I never actually felt like deprived or depleted of workers, which is, which is interesting, right? Even though you know, there's this really tight economy. I felt I always had just enough, but was still worried about having enough. That really depends, I think, uh, to a certain extent on play style. I've had some games where I visit the lawyer a lot and I get, and, and a side consequence of that is you start getting more workers as income. And uh, then the last game I played, for example, I was constantly short on workers. I never had enough to get anything done. And the primary effect of that isn't so much that you're not able to go and activate buildings. The primary effect of that is you don't have uh, what I would call a war chest left over to protect your interests. Because let's talk about the provost. And this is one of the, so I talked, we've talked before about how tight the worker placement is. And that encourages a certain degree of player interaction which is an area where worker placement games often fail. But the provost is still very much alive. One of the unique features of Kalis was just because you put your worker out doesn't necessarily mean your worker is going to do anything because any worker that's past the provost is not going to activate a building. The provost is super mean. Really, really mean. Kalis is a super mean game, and Kalis 1303 remains very, very mean. Right. Not only is there a space like a worker space that is going to let you move the provost two spaces. But there's also when everyone passes, they put one of their little buildings on the bridge and whoever passes first gets the first player marker. And then in passing order, everyone puts a building out. And then as you activate all the buildings, because you don't uh, get your reward immediately as you put out your worker in other places, everyone puts out their workers and then you start going up the road, which also let's just talk about that quickly as we're going on. Cause it leads to other mechanisms where you sort of have to plan out it's like okay first i'm going to get the resource then i'm going to do the action so you sort of have to plan out in your head how you place the workers and where it lies on the road so that being said as you're working your way up the road you move someone moves the provost if someone went there two spaces and then you get to the bridge now in order that people passed you can move the provost up to three spaces by spending your workers and this is where it gets super mean it gets really really mean you've got all those elements of the economy but there's also the issue of can I protect my placements? If you're very early on in the road, you don't tend to have to worry about it. But these are the oldest buildings. Some of them tend not to be very good. If you want the newer buildings, if you want the ones on the cutting edge that have been constructed most recently, sometimes those are the best buildings and or sometimes it just happens to be what you need. You have to worry about where it's going to end up. And there are a variety of different tools at your disposal. You can either save workers, so you can just throw workers out of the bridge, or you can try to come up with 
temporary ad hoc alliances. You get to see if you don't have a lot of workers, but somebody else does and they've placed very far along the road. Well, you can probably hope that they're going to be spending some of their resources to make sure that the provost is where you need it to be. And a lot of these calculations are very, very, very cruel. And you end up in situations where people with lots of workers just spend resources exclusively to deny other people activations. And honestly, if you're not in the mood for that, or if your group doesn't like that, it's going to rub you the wrong way. But personally, I find it delicious. And a welcome change to most worker placement games. Yeah, and it's also the other strategy is to put workers out into places that you don't completely need, but it it lets you pass later on the round, which lets you move the provost last, right? So that's also another interesting mechanism. Yes. Can I bring up on this issue of when one passes? Do I have your permission to bring up a serious yes, negative? You may. Thank you very much, Walker. I, I will allow it. I appreciate your magnanimity. One of the elements that get removed from Kalos uh, to Kalos 1303, which I think is a, I don't know if it's a serious problem, but it's a serious defect, I think. And that is Kalos had a dynamic turn structure whereby it wasn't always clockwise and it, it really depended on how you activated a certain building, uh, specifically the stables. You could go to the stables to jump up on the turn order and things like that. And so it wasn't always clockwise or counterclockwise. It was variable. Kalos 1303, whoever passes first gets the first turn marker. And that's it. And then it's just clockwise. In a three-player game, that's not a huge deal. In a five-player game, that can be a really huge deal. Especially if you're in a situation where the same person reliably passes first. If you're to their right, it is massively disadvantageous to be in that situation. And the way to accommodate it is to really effectively take what is close to a null turn. And then, of course, the person to your right is now being systematically disadvantaged. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You can't do anything to come in second in turn order, much less third or anything like that. It's one of the areas of Kalos, pretty much the only area of Kalos, that I really felt lacking in compared to 1303. Agreed. I thought a quick fix to that would be just to slide the buildings. Like, after everyone's passed, just to slide the buildings down. And just make that the turn order. I wonder if that would be an easy fix for that. I agree. Next time we play, I'm actually going to suggest that as as a variant. We'll report back here if we have any data to report. Yeah, just have the turn order for the next round be the order in which you pass. So you have some control maybe over what's going on. All right. Another great thing is the fact that I felt as though all the buildings were very, very balanced. There's... Uh, like in worker placement, we've talked about before where some of the the areas are just completely useless. Nobody ever uses them. I felt as almost a lot of times you just stop placing workers because everything was taken. Exactly. And this is one of those areas where I really think 1303 is preferable to Magna Carta because a lot of these streamlining elements, or at least parallel streamlining elements existed in Magna Carta. And a lot of people prefer Magna Carta to original Kalos, and I can see why. But one area that Magna Carta didn't have was the meanness and the cruelty. And one of the reasons why is because in Kalos and Kalos 1303, when you place a worker on somebody else's building, they immediately get a point. And this can be considerable. We're talking about a relatively low score points game. And, uh, you know, a point here, a point there tends to add up. Whereas in Kalos Magna Carta, the owner of a building only got the benefit when the building was activated. So in other words, what you always have in Magna Carta is two people at the table who want the building to be activated. The person who placed the worker and the person who owns the building. Sometimes that's the same person. But So as a result, you had much less incentive or the situations where you would want the provost to screw them out of that action were very narrow. Whereas in... Kalos 1303, you sometimes have that aspect of someone visiting your building and getting a benefit when it's activated. Mostly, though, the moment they show up, you're happy. And you'd be perfectly willing to knife them in the back and deny them your ability to activate that building. All right. I have many paths to victory. 
There's being the person that builds the buildings. Because like we said, if someone uses your building, then you get a victory point. To say nothing of the points you get when you build it. Well, yes, you get you get points when you build it. There are what we call packets. At the very end of the road, there's building the castle. Bundles. Walker. Bundles. I'm very bundles. sorry. Bundles. You get to put out bundles, and that's like paying three resources, all different. One must be food. The other two must not be food and be different. And uh, that gets you five victory points. So that's another... And you can do all of these together, but you can concentrate on one. And then there's these special abilities, right? Where you can you can get a certain combo of special abilities that you can, you know, utilize and, and get victory points that way. I like the fact that it's not all streamlined one way to get victory points. There's all sorts of different ways you can win this game. There's also the prestige buildings. One way that the prestige buildings have changed in Kalis to 1303 is that now in 1303, building prestige buildings is just part of the turn structure. It's one of the only things you do that is not a function of activating a building. Just everyone can build prestige buildings every round, which is helpful because you don't have to... The the shorter length of 1303, and more on that later, means you're not necessarily going to be guaranteed that somebody builds the building that lets you build prestige buildings, and then there might be too much of a bottleneck in terms of who gets to activate that one building, because building a prestige building can be 20 points if you've saved up the resources for it. And putting that through the, the bottleneck of a single building hoping that it gets built and gets activated in a fair way, that might be a little bit too much to ask. Uh, but So let's talk about the characters here, because this is one element that is entirely new in 1303, did not exist in previous versions of Kalos. At the top of the game, you deal out N plus three special characters that all have a relatively minor to relatively major special power. You draft them in reverse star player order, and then... Over the course of the game, you can activate these things called favors, which lets you get more characters, the ones that weren't drafted at the start, or steal them from other people. I was a little concerned that maybe these were going to be a little bit too consequential or a little bit too inconsequential, because in either case, it would be it would be problematic. But I actually thought that they struck a relatively good balance. I think so, too. I think some of them were definitely more powerful than others, but I think they were very situational. And the fact that they move around so often, like... like I, like I said, if, if you feel as though someone's utilizing one of those special powers, powers too much, you just throw a bundle out and then you take his power or, or vice versa. Or you take, you know, whatever goods they need to activate that power. Yeah, there are a couple different ways to get new special powers. It's it's the new favor system. In the old version of KLS, you had four different tracks. This was this is sort of the the progenitor or predecessor to tracks on tracks on tracks. There were four small tracks, and every time you got a favor, you get to go up one of the tracks. Now, instead of doing that, you have these buildings that are set aside as favor buildings, and you might get to activate one of them, and or you get to take a new character power, either from somebody else or from the available supply. And honestly, I thought that the the frequency with which they moved around was pretty good. It was the situation where if you desperately needed a power to work for your current turn, you could defend it, but on the other time, it, but for the rest of the time, you just had to keep your eye open for what was available and, and react accordingly. I thought it worked out really well. Yeah. I'm going to break my own rule, Mark. Just because we're talking about packets and 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 bundles and sure and batches, batches. It's I've I have a very small bad bad list here. So this is, is this only, your complaint? This about... is literally one of two things I have bad. And okay, and since you're talking about the 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 tracks on tracks, is is I think I felt while I was playing case, it was the one thing that I sort of missed, right? Because it was one thing you sort of like drove to and had goals for, and and doing the batches is a fairly big part of the game, right? Is saving up resources, doing batches. And it was something that you got on top of doing the batch. Like this, you get five points and that's pretty well it. But in old Kalis, not only did you get points, but you moved up these tracks and you got stuff. And when you got to the end of the tracks, you could start bouncing off the top of the tracks and really getting some good points. So 
I can see why it was changed and it definitely reduces the, the time more on that later. But, but it's, I found as though if I had to pick something bad, that was the one bad thing I saw in this new gate version of Kalis. I didn't miss them. Long story short, I definitely see that a lot of people loved manipulating the tracks, but there was also, there was some question as to whether or not all the tracks were balanced. The general consensus. Yeah, like, don't get me wrong. If I had to, if I had a choice, I would go to be without the tracks. I'm sure. just saying I felt as though, you know, it, it was lacking slightly for like the, you know, looking forward to doing a, a bundle packet. <laughs> bundle packet bundle? Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Different, different every time. We just talked about the characters or the special abilities. There's like a deck of 12 to 15 and you're only using a number of players plus three. So the mix is going to be totally different and whether or not they're available or the players pick them at the beginning is going to be different. The buildings that go out, not only the buildings that go out, but the order, which does matter, is going to be different as well. So I like that part, the fact that it's a different experience every time you play. The amount of variety that you get just from the different building placements. You get three buildings at the top for the new favors. You get a, a stone building that's going to show up later. Then Kalis was printed on the board and it was always how gold entered the system, but now it's a random building. And a random wood building at the start. And when they are a random start building, they work differently than if they were constructed over the course of the game. And I really like how it those subtle changes to the economy really pay significant dividends. Again, this is one of those things where I was reading, it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, put out a random start building. Every bloody euro has some minor variance in, 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 in setup. But this you actually felt in the economy and it made a significant difference and I really liked it. All right. We talked about, we played five player and other than the turn sequence, I thought it worked great at five player. It moved very quickly. The flow was great. You, you know, you put out your workers until everyone passes and then you just have someone, you know, going along the road, you do this, you do this and you start picking up workers. Yeah. Other than the turn order, it scales really, really well. And this picking up the workers is going to dovetail into what I was talking about before. Just a slight little you know, board thing that, that's included that seems minor, but just it makes it a much better experience to me. They have this area on the board that's called the tents, and that's where you put all your extra workers. You know, you might wonder why, you know, why can't I just keep my workers in front of me and these are my active workers and these are my non-active workers. It, I don't know why, but it, it just makes the game for me. The fact that everyone's workers over there and the ones that you have are just in front of you. I don't know what it is about it, but it just it just seems like a huge part. It certainly helps to visual identify how many workers your opponents have, you know, start working about, you know, what, what's your active pile and so forth. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's surprisingly user-friendly. Another thing that's been changed in the new version that I really like is, generally speaking, the costs of things have been smoothed out and simplified. I really don't like it when... A lot, especially in, in medium to heavier Euro games, where everything rests on your having the precise configuration of goods, and where one thing is off, you're really, really hosed. Now, in the context of offering batches to the castle, yes, you need to have a precise combination, but it's somewhat flexible. I wasn't able to get the wood that I needed. Oh, okay, well, a stone will do just as well. You have, a, you have the ability to do that. All of the buildings, all the wood buildings, cost one wood and one of something else. Sometimes it's specific, but sometimes it's not. So you can show up and be guaranteed to be able to build something if you've got a wood and something else, the overwhelming majority of the time. Same thing with stone buildings. Whereas in the original Kalis, the recipes for specific buildings tended to get a little bit more specific. And if you showed up at the castle and didn't offer the precise combination of goods, you would get a point penalty, which wasn't a huge deal, but it felt really punishing. 
And in terms of the variety of different strategies, also at the end of each era in Kalos, if you hadn't shown up to to donate to the castle, you also got a point penalty. I'm not saying it's particularly competitively viable to ignore offering goods to the castle entirely, nor should it be, I guess, especially thematically speaking. But it's that extra little bit of feeling constricted that the system introduced that 1303 gets rid of and without any concordant reduction in quality of decision making. And so I think that's really one of the improvements in terms of honing the design. All right. And my last point I have is the hidden scoring. The fact that all your points are hidden. I think that's an essential part of it because of all the way the special abilities are bouncing around and the way your combos are acting up, I'm, I'm really thinking as though people would could gang up on you if they knew what your points were. And, and I think it would break down if if the points were visible. Especially given the additional level of cruelty of the provost, I agree entirely. So for me, to, to sort of sum up, I think that Kalis 1303 is one of the best worker placement games that I've played in the past few years. I don't think it's going to eclipse any of my uh, top three worker placement games of all time, but that's, you know, that's a relatively high bar. Empire's Age of Discovery, Tribune, Primus, Interparis, and Agricola, for what it's worth. But I definitely think it can stand shoulder to shoulder with all the other worker placement games that bring something new to the table, that offer enough variety, that def- that, that deserve space in rotation. I'm thinking specifically of swag favorites like Dogs of War and A Feast for Odin. I don't know that I'd like it quite as much as A Feast for Odin, but it's in many ways I like having both of them in my collection because the ways that Feast for Odin are weak, Kalis 1303 is strong. The direct competition, the meanness, the ability to, to inflict pain upon your rivals. So although you don't get this tremendous sandbox that you have in, in A Feast for Odin, it's nonetheless a direct very, very tight competitive experience. Well, I, what I was going to say is that I really feel as though if I'm showing someone new to the hobby or new to games what a worker placement is, this is the game I'd show them. This is essentially, really? yeah, I think this is essentially the worker placement game. It is robbing spaces from people. It is being mean. It is, it is, it is just the essential of what a worker placement is. It's I, nice and short, easy to teach. And I really feel as though this is the worker placement game for me. Well, actually, we haven't explicitly said it. One of the big ways in which I prefer uh, Kalis 1303 to the original Kalis is precisely its length. The original Kalis, you're talking easily three hours, even with people who know what they're doing, depending on player count. Whereas 1303, because of the way the economy develops, because it's a fixed length, unlike uh, the original Kalis. But honestly... Whether you tell me that it's a fixed length nine rounds or whether it's a variable based on all these other things, I don't really care that much. The only times when I really think that the end game condition is superior is when it's like a race. First to do this thing wins. Something like Antica or even the Settlers games. That I can get behind and that I think is a, is a more compelling end. But absent that, I don't mind it being a fixed nine rounds. I think that's fine. I don't know that I'd introduce it to, to, to newer players though, precisely because it's not as simple as a lot of other intro games could be. And number two, it's really mean. I really appreciate the meanness, but a lot of newer gamers aren't necessarily want to, don't necessarily want to be thrown into the deep end, knives out, where everyone's gunning for everybody else. I think you should hurt their feelings right off the beginning. So that way, you know, when the when the decent games come out, they won't feel so bad. Some people will be ready for it, but I think a lot of other people might be turned off. I also feel this is a fifth, like the original Kalis came out 15 years ago. And like you said, there's all these different versions that have been out. I really feel as though they've taken the essence of all of these, boiled it down to exactly what this game needs to be. I'm really enamored by it. I really like this game. Yeah, me too. I think it's a really, really solid offering. I was not expecting to like it as much as I did, but I think that Atia and Space Cowboys have done a superb job of taking what was good 
getting rid of a lot of the cruft and simultaneously introducing new things that enhance the experience. And doing all three of those things at once is very, very challenging. And I think they deserve credit. Yeah, I think more people that re reissue these older games, I really think I wish they'd would do something like this instead of just saying, Oh, here is this older game republished again. I wish they would modify it and bring it more up to date because a lot of these games, you can, you know, find them on the secondary market. It's not that big a problem. If you're going to republish a game, I guess a lot of people just want, you know, a newer looking old game, but I really wish they they would boil it down and and update it. Like they did with this Kalis 1303. As much as I like, offerings like the new claustrophobia as much as i like offerings like the new Catan starfarers i really think this is the ideal way to do it the way they did it with 1303 this is a 15 year old game this isn't something that was published just a few years ago this was this this is and it's really one of the seminal games in the genre and they made considerable alterations to it while improving it in every step of the way unlike something like claustrophobia which is a more recent release and Maybe I'm splitting hairs here over dates, but or unlike something like Catan Starfarers, where they didn't change a whole heck of a lot now. Or Siege of the Citadel. Let's talk about that. Or right? Siege of the Citadel, which they mostly just ported in all the, the, the old problems and didn't really improve anything. You're absolutely right. This, I think, is a masterclass on how to reissue a seminal Euro game. And if they start applying this sort of technique, if they're able to inject this level of refinement into games that are 20 years old on the reg, then I'd very much be looking forward to that being the new market. As opposed to something like, look, I, I don't mean to crap on Rococo Deluxe or Kanban EV or whatever, but like we're talking about re- uh, comparatively recent releases with comparatively few rules changes. And I'm with you. If it's just a new graphical overhaul, I really don't think that the market needs a whole heck of a lot of that, especially given how saturated the market is. This is this kind of quote-unquote reprint slash redevelopment. This is more of what I'd like to see. Agreed. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks very much again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you liked it, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.